Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Today we're talking to Mary Floyd Wilson, the Bowman and Gordon Gray Distinguished Term Professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where her research focuses on English literature of the early modern period. As a fellow at the center this year, she's working on a new project, The Tempter and the Tempted, Demonic Causality on the Shakespearean Stage, in which she examines ways that Elizabethan-era depictions of demons and demonic influences reflected shifting contemporary attitudes about evil, temptation, and human motivations. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Thank you. So I want to start with a big, broad question. You talk about how your work is challenging the view that Protestantism fostered the disenchantment of the world and hastened modern secularism. Could you unpack that a bit for us in terms of disenchantment of the world, modern secularism, and talk a little bit about why that view has been dominant and in what ways you're challenging it? Well, it has long been held that with the Reformation came a shift in thinking that has been perceived as sort of an advent of the modern age, and that it was understood to a certain degree that Catholicism gets cast by the Protestants, in fact, as a kind of superstition, as holding on to sort of magical beliefs in relics and materials, ways of praying and thinking about worship that got deemed certainly by the Protestants as magical and dismissed then as false belief. And this has then led to lots of historians making long arguments about that this was sort of the beginning in which people did not perceive then the world to be animate, that the spirits that were once thought to reside in the woods and the trees and the rocks and in the world were believed to have vanished and that fairies were gone, that miracles were over. This is the kind of language that you get with the Reformation. So part of the problem with making an assumption that this is a time of disenchantment, this is the beginning of secularization, is people misunderstood, or historians, I mean, have misconstrued to a large degree what superstition was at the time. Uh, Superstition wasn't what we believe to be superstition, which is false belief in sort of magical notions. Instead, superstition was wrong belief. So the world could still be filled with demons and spirits. It's just that you couldn't rely then on those spirits and demons to do things for you as they believed that the Catholics thought was possible, that you could say a prayer and have that spirit intervene for you, or you could actually manipulate the natural world in some way and have power over it. Instead, the Protestants argued that when those things happened, when they occurred, you were in cahoots with the devil, that you were in fact unknowingly which is in some ways scarier, right? being manipulated by demonic forces. And so this isn't, in fact, then just because they use the word superstition to cast the Catholics as wrongheaded, this was not a shift in thinking that the world was disenchanted. It was, in fact, just a different understanding of how you could exist with that spiritual world. So we we still have the firm belief in, I guess, what we would call the occult as opposed to what has often been assumed is, is a sort of transformation into enlightenment reason at this point mm-hmm. in the 17th century. 
it's funny that you bring up the word occult because my last book, I, I use that word quite specifically to talk about hidden and to talk about the ways in which what was understood to be occult was quite literally what was understood to be hidden, unseen, what you couldn't know. I argue in that book that the occult played a huge role in scientific discourse and in the advancement of science, that people started to look at things that were occulted and hidden to try to determine explanations for the effects of things rather than the causes of things, that that was a kind of a shift to what you might define as rationalism or scientific empiricism, is how do you move knowledge forward if you can't know what the triggers or the causes are behind these things that are hidden and secret? Well, you study the effects, right? So you talk about what kinds of things are produced by these secret causes, and you stop trying to theorize what the actual cause is. So the occult, I think, has broad, myriad meanings. For us, when we use it, we often just mean magical and enchanted. And so for an answer to your initial question, yes, I'm saying that the world is still enchanted at this point, but that the occult also had a specific role, in fact, in moving knowledge forward. How would sort of an everyday person in the 17th century under the set of assumptions how would an everyday person perceive the devil as omnipresent in daily physical life? Um, the devil is not simply a non-corporeal metaphor. So how does the devil go beyond metaphor and become a physical presence in, in the life of a person in this time period? So I've been reading lots and lots of sermons and um, religious tracts and reports that people give of their spiritual experiences as well as um, more prescriptive language for what you do when you have these spiritual experiences to kind of gather that information. And some of it, of course, is maybe more imaginative than reportage, but I do think that what I'm trying to construct here is how did people inhabit their bodies and live their lives in thinking about these spiritual forces. So I think that you can discern it in a number of ways. They were quite interested in their belief that Satan, the devil, and his minions and demons could plant thoughts, could stir emotions, cause disease— it was an infectious force. That's one of the things that I'm most interested in, in fact, is the not just the parallels between the discourse on disease, such as plague in particular, because there are a lot of plague tracts at the time. And one of the arguments that is put forth in many of the tracts is that evil spirits are what infect people with plague. So that's a kind of correspondence with the kind of religious language that we find in which evil spirits cause the disease of sin as well. Now, what's fascinating to me, because, of course, they didn't have a modern notion of contagion. There was no understanding of germs. What I've discerned is that they had a what I call a notion of sympathetic contagion, which um, means that, that they always believed that there was something within someone that brought either the evil or the disease to that person, so that there was a kind of attraction between an internal corruption and an external corruption. And they saw this everywhere, even in their miasmic notions of contagion, and that a fetid pool that was still and corrupt and would spontaneously generate toads and worms and frogs, which were diseased, could also be occurring in someone's body. You could have a fetid pool of melancholic humor, and the state of your soul could produce monsters of sin. That's one of the places I look is for that kind of language. You see that language in Richard III. You see that language in Othello. 
Duchess of Malfi, where you have these villains who are malevolent and poisonous and infectious. And there's a strong parallel between these kinds of environmental understandings of disease and contagion and the ways in which people pass evil and infection onto others. So it's construed in the, in the sermons and in the tracts and in these reports of people's experiences as demonic. There are more concrete descriptions of Satan being in a presence in someone's room, Satan appearing, for example, in the Witch of Edmonton as a dog. Familiars that appear, of course, to witches are demonic entities that they can see. But I'm much more interested in the spiritual infection aspect of this um, and how that gets understood as a... For someone like William Perkins, who is a quite famous Protestant theologian at the time, who writes a lot about how do you scan your thoughts to determine whether what you're thinking is your own or are these thoughts planted there by Satan. So you had to be quite vigilant. You had to be careful that your own inclinations to sin weren't bringing the devil in and that that could happen in a what I think of as a kind of material spiritual process. It's not purely spiritual, but it's not purely material either. So when Richard III or Iago or Ferdinand are called a poisonous toad, for example, this is not simply derogatory term. I mean, there's a lot more that's associated with that. Yeah, that's that's something that I'm trying to unpack. In fact, right now I'm going to be giving a paper in Cambridge University in March, and I'm going to talk about Richard III and the toad references. And I do believe that there is a material element to that, that this is not just an analogy to say, oh, you are a hunchback toad who spews poison. Instead, I think that it is getting at an environmental contagious disease framework that people would have understood through a whole range of discourses, medical discourse, religious discourse, and that these poisonous entities had a greater power sort of in in thinking about the spread of of evil. I think in Richard III in particular, there are a lot of examples of what I call sympathetic contagion, in which people find themselves suddenly behaving like Richard, (laughs) right? They start to curse. They start to enact the very things that he has sort of planted in them. So he is a a kind of servant of the devil, and the way he then spreads that temptation and that evil is through a discourse that functions in in a materially poisonous way. So you're kind of collapsing the distinction between the physical and the moral in many ways. I mean, there's little distinction between as you're saying, physical disease and and, and moral wickedness and what may be perceived as routine circumstances from a contemporary audience on the stage is by no means routine. Yes. I mean, that's one of the methodological goals of the book, actually, is to think we have already thought very, I think, sophisticatedly about how in a pre-Cartesian age, there isn't a distinction between the physical and the mental or the emotional that these things all function together in the humoral body in many ways. And I think that there is similar work to be done in thinking about this lack of distinction between the moral and the physical, that there was often confusion as to whether you should consult a spiritual advisor or a physician, and often it was said, well, both. You need to consult both in order to be healed and cured because these things work together. You come up with, uh, you coined the term, I believe you coined this term, uh, geohumoralism. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a, a bit about that term? In my first book, English Ethnicity and Race, 
in early modern drama, I am looking at a medical discourse that's based in the humors, so the four humors of the period, phlegm, blood, collar, and melancholy. This discourse was not just about healing the body or balancing the body, and lots of work has been done on on this material in terms of gender, but that it was also a way of understanding difference in a broader sense, a way of understanding the ways in which people who lived in different areas and had different environments, climates, weather affecting them, um, that this shifted and changed and determined their humoral makeup. And so the English, for example, perceived Africans to be melancholic, and the blackness of their skin was denoting the black humor of their bodies. They were more likely, the English, to be characterized as phlegmatic or sanguine. So that this maps onto the world in some interesting ways. It's also, of course, a discourse that can be manipulated in many ways, and it was. Usually whoever is writing the material writes it from the advantage of their particular nation and casts others as being at a disadvantage. But it's interesting to look at the work on geohumoralism or the material that goes back to classical period because the English had to do a lot of manipulating and a lot of shifting and changing things to work that material to their advantage because actually it was problematic to be a northerner, to be in a cold environment. It meant that you were barbarous. It meant that you were slow-witted, that you were uncivilized. You did have bodily strength, though, on your side. So in conclusion, I'm really tempted to ask you about what brought you to study temptation. Well, it's interesting. I wish I had a really sexy story to (laughs) explain this, but what happened as the transition from thinking about ethnicity and geohumoralism is that I wrote an, an article on Macbeth, and I was invested in that article in thinking about the Scots and in thinking about their environment and how the witches manipulate the winds and that there's all this material there that is geohumoral, but there's also magic and witches and temptation. And that part of it exceeded my explanatory framework. And so I started to think about how we as scholars of literature have not really thought seriously in some ways about demonic forces And just to simplify it, one of the age-old questions about Macbeth is why does Macbeth fall to the witch's promptings um, and Banquo does not? And what is it about an individual that makes them prone or more prone to temptation? And so that set me on the path initially um, of thinking about, well, was there material? Was there a discourse on why some people were tempted and some were not? And who the devil lures in and and what that process actually looks like and feels like to an early modern. So I would say it was Macbeth that got me there. We've been speaking to Mary Floyd Wilson from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who this year is a fellow at the National Humanities Center, working on this fascinating project. I'm Robert Newman, president and director of the center. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center. 